For Beyond Profit, a podcast of the ANA Center for Brand Purpose, I'm Ken Bolio. According to the 2021 Edelman Trust Barometer, business is not only the most trusted institution ahead of government and NGOs, but also the most ethical and competent. While not associated with the study, the Rutgers Institute for Corporate Social Innovation recognizes the value business provides to address societal needs that can improve the world. The Institute brings together leaders from private, public, and nonprofit sectors to collaborate with top scholars in advancing corporate social innovation. Joining me today is Dan Grimm, Distinguished Executive in Residence at the Institute. He serves as an advisor on strategic communications, branding, and content strategy. Previously, Dan spent three decades at the medical technology company Becton Dickinson, where he led formative work on brand purpose and customer centricity. Dan joins me to discuss the important work of the Institute and how brands and businesses can become forces for good. Dan, welcome to Beyond Profit. Hi, Ken. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. And congratulations to you and the team at ANA for all the good work you're doing. Thank you. It's greatly appreciated. So Dan, I, I think you'll be happy to know that same Edelman study ranked academics as the most trusted spokespeople. So no pressure. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Ken. <laughs> so let's just off the top, you've acknowledged that while businesses are now addressing societal issues, or at least more of them are, there's still much more work that needs to be done. So where are they falling short? As much amazing work as is happening out there, there's just so much more to do. We just want to encourage companies and our students to continue to do more. Yes, many firms are using their capabilities to affect some social change. And we think that one way for these firms to do even more is to minimize the extent to which they might feel like one-off activities or right. siloed activities and to really intentionally integrate them into their business strategy. To me, this is the secret sauce. They're not just doing these things independently, but they've built in systems or processes that allows them to realize sort of the synergistic gain that can be associated with doing these things in an integrated way. There are also those kind of corporations who are very active already and can go even deeper than what they are doing. Think of it as is helping to address the cause and not just the symptoms, which is mm -hmm. often sort of what makes the headlines. This idea that firms can go deeper by unlocking their imagination, it's a concept that I'm really fond of mm -hmm. because the work is hard. Let's be really clear. The work right. is hard. It, it's easy to walk away from this. And a firm, for instance, could say, what do we know about, pick a topic, climate change? What do we know about climate? And to them, I'd say, gosh, you have an army full of scientists and money people and engineers and big thinkers and creatives. I wouldn't doubt for a minute that your collective brain power and energy could figure out a way for your firm to be involved. So think about climate. Once upon a time, Greta Thunberg didn't know anything about climate either. Sure. So it's the kind of thing where I would say with intent integrated into your business strategy and also just imagine the possibilities if you can unleash your team in the right direction. Dan, is it because you know you mentioned it's hard work and I agree with you, is, is that the rationale for why you see so many one-off campaigns and yet these firms still consider themselves purposeful? I think that's a big part of it. The, the one-off campaigns are easy, easier comparatively, and they do have a promotional panache that is attractive. There's a sex appeal that goes along with that. But we all know that we need efforts that are sustainable and sustained. 
And that in doing so, that's where the real impact comes. Individual mm-hmm. efforts, a singular donation in response to a natural disaster, mm-hmm. it's very important. I'd encourage companies and individuals to continue to do that. But it's the sustained, prolonged effort that really makes the difference. So more brands are also taking on societal issues, as you know. What are the factors that often hinder brands from going all in? There are many. I think for some of them, it may just simply be a capacity issue. They're living quarter to quarter and just say, I can't take on anything more than making my next payroll. So Mm -hmm. in some cases, it's a capacity issue. In some cases, I might say there's a matter of conviction about their impact on a social cause and where their duty to their shareholders may be. I think in some companies, there could be a risk aversion or a cultural drive that might prevent them from getting involved. might view it to be a distraction of some kind. It is really complicated. And and two things maybe come to mind, Ken. Mm -hmm. For some, the short-term ROI just may not be there. In our research at Rutgers, uh, Dr. Mike Barnett found that traditional efforts, say like something you might imagine, like a CSR Mm -hmm. activity, that traditional efforts like that, they can, in fact, they do pay off, but only when it's a sustained effort. And in many ways, I think of it like a manufacturing line, that it takes time to get the line up to speed. And once it's humming, then you're really highly efficient. You're really seeing a positive ROI. And we've seen that with some of these efforts that there is often a ramp up investment that over time, the transactional nature of whatever they're doing does become more efficient. And that's where the good impact and the goodwill that the firm can earn, that's where it really begins to become more impactful. So you got to have a little bit of a long view on these types of things in order to really realize the full benefit. And then a a second thought that came to mind, I think for those who may be risk averse, I think there are ways to sort of spread out that risk to ameliorate the risk. One example would be engaging in a public-private partnership where you know and can clarify what's my seat at the table going to be and how do I want to participate in this and how much can I and will I be able to invest in this? It's sort of like a mutual fund of partners where you Mm -hmm. can kind of spread out the activity and therefore also spread out the risk. I think that when a a firm is engaged in a public-private partnership, what's really important then is for that partnership to clarify its own purpose. Mm -hmm. And doing so can also sort of quiet or stem any concerns that a firm may have about risk. Mm -hmm. I once participated in a partnership where very early on, we clarified our reason for being. It It had to do with the spread of HIV from the sexual abuse of children. And we had people from all kinds of agencies, government agencies, NGOs, and so on. But once we aligned around that, we were very engaged. It didn't matter who worked for whom. We were very in sync. And that clarity of purpose in a partnership not only sort of becomes what we do and why we are doing this, but it can, again, sort of quiet the concerns that a firm might have about risk. Just to clarify, when you're talking about risk, are you, do you mean specifically the potential of damaging your re- reputation or alienating your customer base, or is it more than that? Well, those are two that certainly come to mind. And yes, that's the risk that I was speaking of. Some firms, I worked for a medical technology firm that was very often conservative in stating our opinions about things. But we were very not conservative when it came to engagement with public-private partnerships and being an active leader in those spaces. Mm -hmm. And it's one of those examples where you do the work because it's important and good and you have something to add to it. You're not doing it so that you can create an ad for it. 
Dan, the younger generations in particular have placed a high importance on brands speaking out. So what's your message to business leaders about the importance of demonstrating their purpose Mm -hmm. through their words and actions? First, I'd remind them that today's students and workers they may have that are early in their career, these are tomorrow's leaders. We know this. And this next generation of workers has never cared more. I think to a CEO, I'd say it's pointless to say you're purpose-driven, but if you're not in the game, don't say anything at all. Your employees want to have a voice. And if you're too timid or too uncaring or too distracted or whatever, that employee's either going to leave or if they stay, they'll be unhappy. I think time and again, the students we see at Rutgers, they want a voice and they want to make a difference. And frankly, they don't see why their employer can't as well. Today's students, they take things like being a global citizen and caring about global issues, they take globalization for granted. Our executive director, Noah Gaffney, just blogged recently about how at the World Economic Forum that that she attended in Davos, that the prevailing attitude of younger people there was that the status quo just simply is not acceptable. It's Mm -hmm. not working. It's not sustainable. Mm -hmm. And hearing their voices over and over again, she said, fortunately, she began to hear CEOs saying things like, we need to really be thinking deeply about questions like, am I proud of the products that we sell? Mm -hmm. Or what kind of legacy will will our company leave? So increasingly, I think leaders, of course, of all they are figures and that they need to set the example. But I think I would say to a CEO, let me give you a peek behind the academic curtain for a minute. Mm -hmm. If a when a student asks me about purpose, I advise them to ask themselves, is my employer's purpose good enough for me? Mm-hmm. Is it good enough for me? I think today's CEOs need to know that's how the next generation of workers, that's how they are thinking now and how they're being encouraged to think by, by people like me. Do you think CEOs are still thinking too much about shareholders and not enough about stakeholders? We've certainly seen that shift in the last couple of years. That is a welcome addition to the conversation. Mm -hmm. I think increasingly they're being forced to do this. The idea of stakeholder capitalism Mm -hmm. is complementary to some of the other concepts that that we promote here as just simply being a responsible business practice that a company has to engage in if they're going to practice good corporate social innovation. Mm -hmm. One other thought there was, I read a research study in Harvard Business Review recently. It was, I wonder if you saw it. It was about how every generation of workers, they interviewed across five different generations of workers, boomers, millennials, Gen X, and so forth. Every generation said they want their work to be meaningful. But the really interesting part of it was that each generation, bar none, each generation thought they were the only ones thought that all the other generations were just in it for the money. And one of the conclusions from the study was that if leaders can really clearly, evocatively state their firm's purpose, that it can serve as a galvanizing force among employees, as it turns out, all of whom want meaningfulness in their work, but all of whom think that the rest don't. And I just thought that was really interesting, a a role that purpose can play across generations generations like that, that can help align an organization and help younger generations feel like at least they're not the only ones. Did you find that surprising? 
I do find it surprising to the extent that it was universal, that in any given demographic, you would find individuals who may feel that way. But the surprising part was in its universality and also in the fact that they each defined meaningfulness. What do you mean by meaningfulness? They, they each defined it in a similar way. So mm-hmm. there, people have more in common when it comes to this than they realize. So one of the primary goals of the Rutgers Institute for Corporate Social Innovation is to educate students on how business can both improve the world and make money. So my question to you is, are students skeptical about that assertion, or are they seeing a sea change in the behavior of brands? This generation of student more than others, and and we have students who run a broad spectrum in, in age. But these students have not just an awareness, they have an expectation that that it's possible. And it it comes to light in the products that they buy and the things that they read. Every time they see a ranking of companies changing the world, they're seeing that it's possible. So I wouldn't say it's so much that they would be skeptical. It's just that they don't know how. They want to learn how to make that difference. And again, we think our pillars, the disciplines that we teach about are a good organizing construct, you know, in order to Mm -hmm. teach them how how to do that. We just continue in the classroom or at our student advisory board and and through other programs. We just continue to hear that students want to work at a place where they're making a difference beyond their job. When I worked back in Dickinson, we we had a phrase that BD was the kind of place where you could achieve your life's work through your work life. And it just, we see time and again, that research will often show that students would rather make less money and love their job for its impact than make a lot of money and dislike their job. And also pay more for products from purposeful companies. All the time. Uh, So another thing the Institute believes in, you say that effective corporate social innovation occurs when companies give back to society. They align profit and purpose. They engage in responsible business practices and they advocate for social issues. So what do you mean by aligning profit and purpose? And how does that manifest itself to the outside world? Well, this is such an interesting question, Ken. And I think if things that are really intellectually stimulating are your brand of whiskey, this is a really fun area to dive into. In this set of activities, there's different types going on. You've got some companies that are just simply authentically, genuinely driven by purpose. These are the kind of companies that maybe they were founded on the basis of a cause and every person in the organization knows that cause and why they're getting up and going to work every day. And they know what works and they have an ambition to do more and more of it. The, I love these people. These are people who say stuff like, you can't change the world playing defense. These are purpose-led organizations, and they're really interesting organizations to study. Then you have firms that are thinking really critically about what they can do to achieve what Michael Porter and Mark Kramer from Harvard have described as a higher form of capitalism. So these are the ones who are striving to create shared value in what they do. Their products are meeting a social need and and delivering a very strong, sustainable financial result. So The concepts around creating shared value are there. And then there's another group of companies that are complying voluntarily with with simply a higher standard. So things like a B corporation status. These are the types of firms that want to, they're willing to do things that others maybe cannot or will not do. 
And we found it's almost, they feel like a legal obligation almost to a higher standard Mm -hmm. around some of these key metrics. So whether it's one or the other or the other, end result is often the same. It's a solution that meets a social need that scratches some kind of itch and does so sustainably, profitably, and in doing so helps a a company pursue its purpose. I love the phrase that Porter and Kramer use when they talk about these types of things that they say it creates a cycle of prosperity that results in profits that endure. And boy, that's a a concise way to say that's the output when you align Mm -hmm. profit and purpose. Right. Concise and powerful way. So Dan, you mentioned these sort of categories of firms. Do you feel as you look ahead that one will emerge? I think that each is going to less likely than one emerging. They're much more likely to blend and that firms who are motivated by their purpose authentically and genuinely will start to take on more critical disciplines like creating shared value and so forth. That as more companies begin to do this, it's going to raise the bar for everybody. Companies are going to look for more sophisticated ways to engage and to align their profit and their purpose together. Mm -hmm. And in doing so, I think we'll start to see a blending and a more sophisticated approach to addressing social issues. Talk a little bit about the importance of diverse thinking in driving corporate social innovation. So highly important would be the answer. When I began over at Rutgers, I didn't realize what a good fortune uh, we had going on there in that Mm -hmm. Rutgers Business School has been the nation's most diverse campus over the last 20 years. So we have built in a highly diverse student and faculty base from which we draw all of our thinking and our teaching. And that's baked right into the four pillars of corporate social innovation that we have, just in the diversity of disciplines themselves. The Mm -hmm. the functional contributions are very diverse. So we want our students to be almost hardwired to open their mind to other perspectives. It's been well-researched. We all know that the best solutions come from diverse inputs, holistic inputs, well-rounded inputs. But we continue to say, not only do you need diversity, but it's not just diversity in the traditional DEI sense. There are multiple diversities, expanded diversities, open your lens to additional diversities. And when you do that, this is what fuels innovation. This is what drives purpose. And we think that's when you really start to see the impact of of your work. This even applies to purpose. And I think the Center for Brand Purpose has some some thinking in this area that we know that, that a highly engaging purpose has to resonate up and down the organization. And so creating a purpose that is very clear and very evocative. This requires diverse inputs from all around the organization. So I don't know, when you have a high level of engagement on your purpose and you're seeking diverse inputs to address a social problem, you're really going to be practicing effective corporate social innovation. Your institute also has identified five societal needs, including climate change. Love to hear more about your work in this area. Thanks for asking. It is the area of climate justice is an area that is new for us in this school year. We're just beginning to work on this. And given some of the recent movement in in the U.S. policy on climate change and Mm -hmm. the recent climate summit and some upcoming climate conferences, we know that this is timely. We also know that companies can help. As some would even argue, have an obligation to help. That companies have wherewithal that other entities simply do not. 
and they need to be part of, of the solution here. The notion of climate justice has been popularized in the last decade or so. It, it's The concept is simple. It's sad, but simple in that it's very often the people who have under-contributed to the problems associated with climate change are the ones who pay for it the most. And there are many examples. One that I read recently that I just thought was so interesting. In the Southern United States, after slavery was abolished, the slave owners at that time didn't give up any of their land. These newly freed slaves had to settle somewhere. And they ended up settling in the areas that no one else would live in. And primarily these were low-lying areas that still today, those people poor at the time, generations later, their descendants are often still living there. And because they're in the these low-lying areas, they're prone to flooding during a natural disaster. These are people whose lower income status may mean that they can't afford flood insurance. They certainly aren't as likely to be buying the kinds of products that have been manufactured in such a way that is contributing to the climate change. And in many ways, you could say those who are least responsible for the issue are suffering the most. So this idea of climate justice is, to me, just an interesting socio and socioeconomic issue. But let's say you're a company and that has operations in that area. I think we would say in the category of improving the community in which you operate, look at the types of activities that we teach with corporate social innovation and ask how you can put those to work for the people who may be disproportionately affected by the climate change. I think even if you're a company not in that area, you can take on some activities, raising awareness, educating, addressing your own business operations, trying to look at what are the things that we can do to minimize the impact that we're having and try to make a difference for people who are being sort of unjustly affected. Mm -hmm. So we're working and looking for corporate partners who would like to continue to blow this out. Typically, our work with corporate partners results in possibly some research, some studies, an impact report, you know, contributions to a sustainability report, those kind of case studies, those kinds of things that can help a company really improve their operations and, and make a difference. I'm sure there are many a brand that agree with climate justice. I assume that some fear putting themselves out there. Are you sensing that? We've seen some of that. This is hard work in part because these companies that might be heavily manufacturing oriented, they've got many types of raw goods to consider. They've got many factors through the supply chain to consider. And at the end of the day, they're trying to make their quarterly numbers. So they may be convicted of and see their role in, but they say, hey, I can't just flip the switch and suddenly convert all my operations. This is going to take 5, 10, 20 years for me to make a difference. And so in some some cases, that's such a long view that they don't quite get started today. We'll wait for tomorrow. In other cases, the ones who are really putting a stake in the ground and committing to doing something above and beyond, these are the ones that are out ahead of the curve. And we would encourage them to do more and more of that, not only just as an action towards climate justice, but just for society at large. So Dan, I mentioned at the top that you've spent, I guess, three decades at Beckton Dickinson, which is one of the more purposeful companies in the B2B space. So what lessons did you learn that you would like to share with listeners today? Ken, I got very lucky in my career. I was fortunate to help advance the company's work in, in a number of areas. My mentor and good friend, Gary Cohen, was a leader and visionary in this space. And, you know, over time, our teams got to work with Bill Gates and the Gates Foundation and hmm. President Clinton and the Clinton Global Initiative and the Vatican and even the Pope on some issues related to childbirth issues to have access to that level of influence and to do so in rightful 
and profound ways was just really a privilege. I think a few things come to mind. One is the idea that the only way things get done in at least public health and global health, and I think maybe at large, is through partnership, that these issues are so big that no one entity can take it on by themselves. But that partnership, it's an art form. It really, truly is an art form. It's hard to do. There's artistry involved. You can learn how to do it. And I think one of the keys to learning how to do it is to make sure that you've got that alignment among the partners. And it gets back to the point I made earlier about purpose, that when you can align on why the partnership is necessary, what's our reason for existing, that just simply becomes a a key to success. And you may have seen this yourself, but it's uncanny to me how it's so true that one open door leads to another room full of doors. That by virtue of being at the table and behaving properly while you're at the table, that an invitation is extended, an introduction is made. One thing leads to another. You're meeting people. You suddenly find yourself in a whole different universe than you began with. And it's all like-minded people who are rallying around a cause. So I think this idea of partnership is, is really key. A second thing would be time and again, I see that authenticity and humility for the cause is just so key to the effectiveness of an effort. When people at the table realize that the problem is bigger than they are, the problem is bigger than me, I understand what I have to offer, but authentically, I'm going to be here and contribute what I can. Mm -hmm. But that so often makes a difference. And even in the way you tell your stories about the work that you're doing, if it's me first, me first, me first, look at what I did, it doesn't tend to resonate as well, in my experience, as the good, hardworking effort that results in impact that you then can talk about. Don't do the things so that you can talk about them. Do them, gain the results, and then tell the stories of the impact from those results. It gives you the opportunity to tell stories that other firms just simply cannot. So you've talked about authentically uh, contributing to the cause and it's just expression, but that's not always the case, as you know, these days, uh, brands are being called on the carpet as purpose washers. What do these brands need to do to work back into the good graces of consumers? I think the firms that are doing that, they're just misstepping and giving a black eye to many other corporations that are mm-hmm. that are doing good work. And to earn their way back, I would focus on the impact related to the need, that when you can press the need, talk about the severity and the consequences of the need, and then speak about how potentially a group of partners came together to address that need, and then say, by the way, we were one of them. That approach, the word humility, the word authenticity, those things come to mind, that that approach tends to work well in consumer perception and in the reputational benefits that a company can gain. The old saying, you gain the most when you give the most and similar phrases like that, put yourself out there, make the the difference, deliver the results, have an impact, and I'll like your odds that some goodwill is going to come your way. You talked uh, earlier about the importance of partnerships. You know, especially with nonprofit organizations that are really championing a cause. I'd like you to talk a little bit about your own nonprofit, Spark for Hope, which is about serving the underserved and bettering society. Talk about its mission and how you're driving. 
thanks for the opportunity to do so. I've been working with teenagers for a long time and in my pursuit always to give them more exposure and to help them be better global citizens, a spark of hope came about just as I described. One open door led to another. There was a, mm -hmm. a UNICEF meeting in West Africa on clean water. A lady I know attended. She met another guy that I didn't know. She connected us. And, you know, all of a sudden I knew where to go, what to do, how to get there. And I thought, mm -hmm. gosh, with all of that knowledge, why couldn't I take some teenagers to West Africa and to other places? But 15 years later, we'll, we're still working together and giving teenagers an opportunity. Here's something that I think a typical teenager wouldn't know and wouldn't have a chance to experience. What we know is that in West Africa, girls are typically responsible for gathering the water. And they have to walk often very miles, many miles to a watering hole. This commonly will happen during the day when they're doing cooking and laundry and so on with this dirty water. And it happens so frequently that very often girls either have to drop out of school, leave school early, or maybe not attend school at all. And we also know that the men know the girls' patterns and will often, sadly, prey on them, accost them. And so the girl has forced sex. Maybe she's infected with an STD. Maybe she gets pregnant. And so you, if you can describe that scenario to a teenager, and then you can say, but what if you and I, what if we, a group of teens with a couple of adults could go and provide water closer to that girl's village mm -hmm. and better yet, even clean water from a natural source, then the girls get to stay in school. They become better educated. They don't have an unwanted baby. They don't have a new baby that they have to take care of. They aren't a burden on the healthcare system. They are not subject to the emotional distress of their circumstance. It's one thing to say to a student, let's go dig a well, but it's another thing altogether to kind of open up the lens and show a, a greater impact. So to give them that opportunity, Ken, it's, it's just a real privilege. I'm lucky I get to do it. I, I love working with teenagers. I have a notebook with a, a saying from... E.B. White that says, every morning I wake up determined to both change the world and have one hell of a good time. Sometimes this makes planning my day difficult. <laughs> Teens are just so much fun to be around. I love when we can come back and they're all full of energy. And I say to them, I can't wait to see what you guys unleash on the world. Go get them. So mm -hmm. it's a real privilege. Thanks for asking. Yeah, that's terrific. I just have to ask though, Dan, is uh, launching this nonprofit a result of working for a purposeful company back then? Absolutely. 100%. When you begin to realize that small groups of people, and, and listen, I started in the middle of the organization, these efforts can flourish. They, they often say purpose starts at the top, and that may be true, but it blooms mm -hmm. from the bottom. And so at my level in the organization, to be able to see what was possible and to start imagining the possibilities, it absolutely was the result of working for a purpose-led company. Terrific. Well, Dan, thank you so much for joining me on Beyond Profit. And I do wish you all the best of luck at Rutgers and with Spark for Hope. Thank you. Thank you, Ken. Be well. Until next time, thanks for listening.